my pleasure and our pleasure to welcome you here today. This program is part of a transition series that uh, Steve Hess has put together. It's also going to be broadcast on uh, Radio 1500 and on XM and Sirius satellite radio as well. So we hope that this can be not only informative for you and for those of us who are participating, but we hope for vast numbers of Americans who will be listening in over various devices in the, in the days and the weeks to come. It is, as we know, a time of transition here in Washington. It's sort of part of our, our quadrennial, or not always quadrennial, rite of passage and a great moment of pride in many ways for what this nation stands for as we pass the torch peacefully from one leader, from one president to another. But the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts of how it actually gets done, for those of you who have moved, just yourselves, never mind the uh, uh, instruments of power that come with the, with the president's job, uh, that's where the rubber meets the road. Um, who does what? How quickly do decisions get made? How quickly are reviews, policy reviews, if they're necessary, conducted? Who meets with whom? Who hires whom? These are, the some, are some, just some of the uh, uh, issues and questions that we will deal with here today. Ultimately, you're judged by the company you keep. The president is judged by the company he keeps, a new president in particular. And as any management guru will tell you, it's all about having good people in the building, good people in the organization to help make decisions and move the ball forward. Let me briefly make uh, introductions. Our panelists here, most of them don't need much of one because they've got such a, uh, an astounding uh, lifetime of achievement and accomplishment. Um, I'm going to start with Alice Rivlin, who joins us here. Uh, she is currently visiting professor at the Public Policy Institute of Georgetown University. She's a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. She served as the vice chair of the uh, Federal Reserve Board from 1996 to 1999. She was the director of the White House Office of Management and Budget in the first Clinton administration. She is the author of many um, articles, books, thoughts, and has contributed to the national dialogue in a profound way uh, for many, many years. To my right, Ed Meese was the 75th Attorney General of the United States, serving in the administration of Ronald Wilson Reagan from 1985 to 1988. I had the privilege of being in the briefing room that day when you stepped out and announced something called Iran-Contra and right. changed history, but <laughs> uh, Ed Meese has a long and distinguished association with, with Ronald Reagan and with public service. He currently holds the Ronald Reagan Chair in Public Policy at the Heritage Foundation, among other things. So welcome to you, and Thank we're you. glad you're here. Um, Bill Galston, William Galston, is currently the Ezra Zilka Chair in Governance Studies, and he's a senior fellow also at the Brookings Institution. He is a, a renowned author and thinker on issues of American public philosophy and political institutions and brings really deep and original thought to um, any number of issues that he has touched upon and has helped shape. He served as the Deputy Assistant, uh, uh, Deputy Assistant for Domestic Policy uh, to President Clinton, later as Executive Director for the National Commission on Civic Renewal. So this is a, an area of, of, uh, of discourse and of life uh, in which Bill Galston has made many and distinguished contributions. Bob Nash joins us as well. His expertise is in management, finance, human resources. His education is in management, sociology, and urban studies. But what he brings to this conversation, I mentioned a moment ago, you need good people. Uh, his, he served as assistant to the president, President Clinton, as director of White House personnel. Uh, and in many ways, the director of White House personnel holds the keys to the kingdom. Because if you want a job, you go through him. If you're going to keep a job, he knows something about that too. 
So welcome to all of you, and we look forward to the conversation. Stephen Hess is one of the most uh, remarkable and renowned people that we're fortunate enough to work with here at, uh, at no? Well, You're too modest. <laughs> at the George Washington University. He works with us here. He works uh, with us uh, through Brookings. He has served in uh, numerous um, uh, administrations going, going back. Let's see, when, when was your first administration? <laughs> Eisenhower. Eisenhower. So um, Stephen, he, he, was, he was 12 at the time. Yes. He was a very, was a very early hire. Really true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, and Steve has just, uh, just written the book that's up on your screens there, sure. What Do We Do Now?, which I think rivals that question that Madeleine Albright asked or posed to when we had the secretaries of state here at the George Washington University when she was thinking about what she would say to the candidates, uh, any of the presidential candidates, when she said, remember, you wanted this job. So <laughs> now that you've got it, what do we do now? And I think I'm going to let Steve Hess start us off here before we move into the questions from our panelists to broadly take a look at what are transitions? Why are they so important, and what are the types of things you want to get your arms around in this series of discussions we're going to be having here over the next few weeks? Thanks, Frank. The, um, the American transition, there is simply nothing like it in the world. No other country has figured out as difficult an obtuse way of moving power around as we have. I mean, look at, look at the British. Look at a parliamentary system where there's an election and the next day uh, the new prime minister walks into the front door of number 10 Downing Street. The old president, or the old prime minister walks out the back door. There's a shadow government in place, ca shadow cabinet in place that takes over, and that's it. That's uh, the male view. Think of the first ladies and what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Uh, well, I should have asked Margaret Thatcher that one. Huh? <laughs> yeah. the, um, the, imagine what we have. Uh, we have an election on the first Tuesday after the first uh, Monday in November. Uh, we have uh, inauguration on January 20th, and there's 10 weeks uh, in which somehow the president-elect has to put together the most complicated government in the world. And unfortunately, we don't have a school for presidents. The odds are very great uh, that unless he perhaps is the governor of California, he hasn't really had any executive experience that's going to be very helpful in, in, in this regard. Uh, what does he have to do? He has to take all of those campaign promises he's made and somehow boil them down into what is really important in setting his priorities and tell the rest of, of the world that. He's got to pick a hundred or so people. Uh, it's not like a parliamentary system in this regard. They're not coming out of the legislature from all the people of the United States uh, who are going to be his key people. And a year later he said, why, why did I pick that person for? Uh, and maybe he has to start over. So it is a very complicated uh, task, and it's not surprising uh, that a number of presidents, rather than hit the ground running, hit the ground stumbling. And this is really too bad, because at that moment when the president uh, is sworn in, uh, his popularity is uh, as high probably as it's going to be. What an opportunity to do something, and how much we would like to help that president-elect to get to that position where he's useful. Of course, all of this is in the context of what's going on in the world. And here, in this particular case, what's going on in the country and the world is, is, is pretty uh, gripping. Uh, a recession at home with international consequences, two wars, still a terrorist threat. Uh, this, is, uh, this is an opportunity. 
for Barack Obama. Uh, great times can mean great presidents, and we're hoping that he is going to rise to this occasion. We have a series, of, this is the first of, of five programs that will deal pretty much in the order that I state it in the book with those things. Not, it's a book that doesn't tell him what to do about the, the economy, but it tells him uh, more or less how to get from here to there. It's a workbook like uh, you had in grade school. It means that if you, if you fill out the blanks, check off things, look things up, you're going to get from here to there with all of those decisions. Uh, including, of course, which desk you want to put in the Oval Office. You've got a place of four, unless you're Lyndon Johnson and want to bring your own. So we're going to help him, we hope, today with uh, starting where one starts with the White House. And no demerits for coloring outside the lines in the world. Uh, one of my friends said that it's the only Brookings book that should ever have been sold with a box of crayon. <laughs> well, I, I would think it'd be better with a pencil with an eraser. Yeah. <laughs> Without auspicious beginning, uh, you mentioned, uh, you talked about executive experience. As we well know, the new president does not have any executive experience. So not only is this an incredible transition for him personally and politically, but also professionally. So I'd, I'd just like to start by asking each of you, and Alice Rivlin, why don't you kick us off, what you think, given these world events, given the fact that uh, President-elect Obama does not have ex executive experience, knowing what's involved, what is going to be the hardest part of this transition, do you suspect, from senator to president and moving all the furniture and people along with it? I think for a man who had no executive experience, he ran a very good campaign. So uh, we have uh, some, uh, some hope there. I think the hardest part for a man coming into a worldwide economic catastrophe, and that's not too strong a word, uh, is to figure out what do we do to keep the uh, financial system from melting down. I mean, we have the handoff uh, from what the current administration has done. Make sure it doesn't go down the train and make it better. Uh, and it's by no means a slam dunk. Uh, the, uh, uh, the situation is very fragile. We have... Uh, uh, big financial institutions here and worldwide uh, that could still crash uh, and bring down a lot of other uh, parts of the economy with them. So that's got to be avoided. Uh, then we have an, a real economy as opposed to the financial economy um, in, going into a recession that threatens to be quite bad uh, here and abroad. And so I think he's just got to focus on that, pull his economic team together, and uh, decide what are our priorities here. So uh, you're suggesting that in his transition, because the economy is the chief challenge, that the economic team, getting the economic team, should be the first order of business? I think so. Uh, now, I'm a veteran of the Clinton transition. Uh, we thought we had a big economic problem. We had a relatively mild recession. Uh, we had a... Uh, uh, and we had a high and rising budget deficit. Uh, so that's what we did. We pulled the economic team together first uh, and uh, got started on those economic things. But this situation is orders of magnitude worse. And so the, the priority that has to be given to that, uh, I think, is very high. Toughest thing for this president's transition, Edme? Well, I would agree with uh, Alice. Uh, that uh, it is a, a very tough matter concerning the economy. We had a similar situation in 1980. 
Uh, at that time, we had interest rates of uh, 21%. We had an inflation at 12%. Uh, unemployment was heading up towards 10%. And so, uh, but I think one thing that the president has, he has a little bit of time. Uh, we had 77 days between uh, election day and inauguration day. And I think he's got to use that time very wisely. Uh, fortunately, uh, President-elect Reagan already had a plan pretty well mapped out, which he had used in his campaign, uh, so he wasn't starting from scratch on how to deal with the economic problems. But I think a president uses that, has to use that time because he's going to set the tone for his entire presidency. And there are, there are really five things. I call them the five Ps. Uh, people, and I know Bob will talk more about that because that's his field. Uh, uh, policy, he's got to determine a wide range of policies. Uh, but he's, he's got to have something in mind for several areas of foreign policy and domestic policy when he starts office. He's got to worry about purse strings. He's got to worry about the finance picture of the government itself, because he's got to have that budget ready uh, to present to Congress. Uh, he's got to worry about uh, what I call problems, uh, including the economy. There may be, uh, uh, well, two wars going on, those kinds of things. And the fifth thing, uh, I call it procedure how he's going to relate to the cabinet, how the cabinet's going to relate to the White House staff. Now, these may seem like kind of mundane things, but it's unless he gets those things settled before he starts office, the day that he takes office, the problems are just going to come at him right and left. And so utilizing this period of time carefully to set these things in motion so that a lot of the situations that occur after the 20th of January, there are procedures in place and these other things are in place, people are in place, so that he doesn't have to do everything or start from scratch on Inauguration Day. This kind of prior planning is extremely important if the transition is going to be successful, and he'll start off, as we said, uh, hit the, hitting the ground running, but with uh, some pretty good ideas of how the government ought to run. You mentioned procedure. Uh, you know, there was a lot of discussion uh, and speculation over just before Rahm Emanuel was named Chief of Staff, and there was some discussion about what does a Chief of Staff actually do? I think a lot of people don't realize you know, how pivotal that one person is. The President of the United States can't have an open door. Anybody can't walk in or the, nothing would ever get done. There has to be quiet time, decision time. There has to be a chain of command. Does all that need to be set up before you, they actually go to the White House so people know how they're going to work? Absolutely. If that's not set up, you're going to have everybody running in to see the President. And it's kind of like once you hit the inauguration day, try, it's kind of a, like organizing on the flat car of a moving train. And so uh, you don't want to, you want to have those things pretty well in place. But you actually send, you actually send a memo to everybody say, here's how it's going to work. Well, you, uh, you certainly have, sometimes you just have, have a chart, sometimes you have a memo, but the key people in the White House have to know how it's going uh, to work. We had it at the time that uh, President Reagan took over, he felt that there was a lot to be done. And so he had essentially three of us at the top, it was the so-called Troika. Uh, Jim Baker, who was the chief of staff, who handled the White House and then the administrative things, the press and legislature, uh, legislative activities. Uh, Mike Deaver, who handled things relating to the president, like his the appointments, uh, that, that is his uh, calendar appointments, uh, the White House uh, residents and travel, security, those things. I had responsibility for the policy, uh, for the running the, the uh, liaison with the cabinet, the executive branch, and policy development. So. It was, uh, in a sense, we were, I think, one of the few times where the so-called chief of staff duties were somewhat divided among three people. Rob Nash, toughest challenge? The toughest challenge, I think, is to make sure that you select capable, competent, experienced 
change agents who believe in your agenda and will work hard, smart, and long to make it happen every day. I believe that this administration will probably get in the neighborhood of 200,000 resumes. Uh, 200,000 resumes? That's my guess. I am, we got 130,000. You got 130,000 resumes? The Clinton administration received 130,000 resumes. Did you, did, did, did you read every one of them? Uh, not every one of them. <laughs> <laughs> but what has to happen is the president is not necessarily, in my opinion, a manager. The president is a leader. There are 10,000 decisions every day almost that has to be made somewhere in the administration. The president cannot make them all. He has to have people, particularly in the White House, as well as in the administration, who believe in his agenda, understand it, and are committed to it, who make those decisions with his best interest and the American people's best interest in mind. So he has to get the White House staff in place quickly, I agree with that, and then work on your cabinet. And then the White House staff and the cabinet has, has, has to almost work like hand in glove to implement the president's agenda. So getting his people in place fast. January 20th, there are about 15 offices of a, what I call assistance to the president in a governmental general, uh, communications, uh, public affairs, uh, personnel, uh, OMB, and others. Those individuals need to be in place, and then they can fill in later after the 20th, but as, many, as much as possible, they've got to be in place. This is like fielding the, the football team and starting with, with the Super Bowl. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> right. Bill Nelson. <laughs> well, let me, let me start with something that sounds small, but as Steve Hess has suggested, it's not small at all. It is extraordinarily difficult to avoid early stumbles that have a deeply deflationary effect. And uh, you know, Bob and Alice and I, I think, all remember uh, how deflating early stumbles can be, whether on the personnel front or the policy front. So let me just stipulate that and then, and, and then make a second point. And that is that it is not widely understood, I think, in presidential campaigns and even by presidential candidates, that you have about four weeks after you take office to put together and then present an alternative budget, your own first budget. And that first budget can be a fateful budget. Uh, and especially if you have made a long string of promises and then find yourself in economic circumstances very different from the circumstances that prevailed when you framed and uttered those promises. Kind of like where we are right kind now. Kind of like where we are right now. You know, the, 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 question, the, the question, as I like to say, of how you cram a size 10 foot into a size 7 shoe is going to be first and foremost, I think, for the how, new... How do, you, how do you do that? Well, uh, this brings me to my third point. Uh, <laughs> And that is that, uh, particularly in this case, one of the most difficult tasks will be the management of disappointment. A lot of people are very excited. Right. They have very high expectations. And what this president is going to have to focus on early on, particularly in the area of the economy, is crisis management. Unless, uh, unless the meltdown of financial institutions can be prevented and unless the engines of economic growth can be restarted so that the recession is not as long and as deep as many economists are now predicting it will be, 
nothing else will be possible. The revenues won't be there, uh, and people will be so distracted by the anxieties and insecurities of daily life that maintaining support for the presidential agenda will be all the more difficult. So, so getting that right, focusing like a laser beam, not just on the economy, as Bill Clinton did, but on the economic crisis, is going to be vital, and some things that he, some things that the president-elect talked about with great fervor and correctly during the campaign may have to get in line in the queue, and that's not going to be easy. Yeah, fortunately, we have a budget director yeah. here, a former budget director of the United States, who gave her opening statement about the huge problem we have that has to be dealt with, and now. Madam Budget Director, you, you've got that budget to put together. Where, where do you go well, from here for today? Let me argue with Bill a little bit. Um, I think in some ways the crisis of the economy is favorable for the presidential promises. In some uh, ways, yes. Because um, we're, we're clearly going into a recession, and we need to spend more and tax less. Uh, we will do automatically we will spend more and tax less. And the appropriate fiscal policy for the short run uh, will augment the deficit. Now, uh, the president promised a middle-class tax cut. Uh, he promised that sort of on fairness grounds uh, rather than economic stimulus grounds. Uh, he promised um, infrastructure uh, spending. Uh, on grounds that it, uh, uh, rightly, I think, contributes to long-run economic growth, not that it is an immediate job creation thing. Uh, but uh, in this situation, he can take some of those promises and put them into his first uh, budget. Now, he has to be very careful, because if he's creating long-run uh, spending, then it, uh, it has to be paid for, but not right away. And uh, so I, I think he's actually in a better situation than Bill Clinton was, who had made similar promises, but had to pull back on, he, he also promised a middle class tax cut, as you well remember, and infrastructure spending. We did neither, because we were so focused on bringing the budget deficit down in the near term. This president doesn't have to bring it down in the near term. He does have to worry about the long run, and uh, the long run isn't so long. But I think he's in a better position from a budgetary point of view than Bill Clinton was. Yeah, so I, let me tell you this. I, I, I think I have to disagree. I think that Barack Obama, being the first African-American president in the history of this country, and given all the inspiration and the hopes and the dreams that he's put out there, and all what I feel are the unrealistic expectations of him, he is going to have a very, very, very difficult time at a time when the financial crisis is looming and probably going to get worse, at a time when uh, a lot of individuals coming into the government may be here for the first time. And this will be very, very difficult for them. I mean, you got to have, they have to understand that when they're there, this is not all glamorous like it, it's, you know, on television where you, I remember once my aunt called me and she said, um, she saw me at a state dinner. She said, oh, I saw you on television at that nice state dinner. How do you do that all the time? And I said, <laughs> do I burst her bubble and tell her that most nights I'm in my office at midnight with a peanut butter and crackers? Or do I just say, oh, I exercise? Well, I didn't burst her bubble. But my point is, it's going to be extremely tough. And I go back to human capital again. He has to have good people around him who understand that the first priority above all 
unfortunately, when I say that, I mean, I'm telling you, the hours, I mean, your family, it's going to be tough. Your personal health, it's going to be tough. you got to take care of it, but it's going to be a very difficult job for this man. And are those jobs hard to sell? Uh, are what? Are those jobs hard to sell? I mean, doesn't everybody want to work with the president? Work well, let me tell you something. There are, generally what happens is, there's about 100 people for every job. And then, so you, you're going to disappoint all these folks. And then there's one ingrate who says, why would it take so long? <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's going to be very competitive. And a lot of people, people don't really understand how many jobs there are. I mean, a president probably will have, uh, uh, Barack Obama, President-elect Obama will probably have about, in four years, about 6,000 positions, counting full-time and part-time, and when you fill it, a term that somebody leaves for about 200,000 applications, it's going to be very, very difficult. Bob, I have a question that I've always wondered about, but I've never had an opportunity to talk about it to a guy who ran the personnel department. Okay, I am an old friend of the president-elect. I have worked so hard for him for so many years. And now I wanted, I'd like to have a job in government, but I've never been in government. Uh, I'm not an expert, just, I'm not a nuclear physicist, you can't put me on the Nuclear Regulatory Advisory Committee. What do you do with those? Now, you've, he, he, he's got to respect that. Those people gave their hearts to him for so many years. They, he owes them something, and yet, in a sense, they're, they're really not qualified for most of the federal jobs, which are highly specialized. What do you do? Where do you, what, how do you work, squeeze them into, out of that committee? <laughs> It's a great question. Uh, there are a lot of people like that. I th I've met thousands of them. And they say, oh. I think we used to call them friends of Bill. <laughs> I've, done, I've done more for the president than anybody else. You know how many times I've heard that? What you do, what you, what you do is this. First of all, you build down the expectations. And you try to find things that might match them. In some cases, it's not a full-time job. In some cases, it's a part-time board of commission, where it's a presidential appointment. You come to Washington either 12 times a year, four times a year, and you don't get paid, but it's a, it's a high honor. You get your expenses paid and you serve. But what you don't do is you don't give that individual who, may, who is not capable or competent of doing that job, the, the job he's asking for, because it's dumb politically and it's dumb for the country. But you find something. Now, there will be a lot of people who are going to be disappointed because there simply will not be enough jobs. So what I think you have to do is, if someone asks for a particular job and they don't get it, what you'd rather not do is to have them read in the Washington Post that somebody got the job I asked for. Tell them that they didn't get it beforehand. That's an example. I can give you 10 other reasons, things you ought to do for somebody who don't get jobs. I think an even tougher thing than seeing the individuals who all think they deserve a job is the members of Congress who come to the president mm -hmm. and say, I have this friend of mine and you've got to find a place for him, Mr. President. I think that, in some ways, is even tougher because you may have a disgruntled friend, but to have somebody on the Hill who you're expecting to get their vote and you haven't been able to place their biggest contributor or whatever else it is, that makes it even tougher. Wow. Bill Galson, I wonder if we could come back to something you were saying, which is sort of, uh, I forget the exact terminology you used, but the, you know, managing disappointment. Yes. Um, and I'm wondering, Steve Hess and others, the degree to which uh, managing expectations 
is part of the transition process. And when I talk about managing expectations, you're managing expectations of the people you need to hire, but you're also managing expectations, in this particular case, of the public, which, as you pointed out, Bob, has outsized expectations of Barack Obama uh, because of the campaign, especially compared to the reality that's, that's going to exist when he goes in there. How, Steve, do, do, I mean, in all the people you've talked to in putting this book together, um, that's got to be a tricky thing, because on the one hand, the president wants to, as Reagan did, you want people really optimistic and hopeful when you step up there. You want to keep those expectations high, but you also got to knock them down a bit so they're reasonable. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing, because in a sense, that's the answer to that, at least in part, is not in my book, because when I started to write this book a year ago, I could not have predicted what Barack Obama did as a candidate through the internet, through the understanding of how to network, uh, which now has incredible consequences. Uh, and by the way, the, the press corps better be aware, the White House press corps better be aware of this. Here's a person who first, in a sense, took Howard Dean's technique of raising money, but then on that built a network, tremendous network, millions of people are out there who are connected with him at a stroke. Uh, and, and he can tell them people, uh, tell them things instantly in a way that no president has ever done before, and a president typically is filtered through the mainstream press, to the network news, to uh, the New York Times. Call it a mediated experience. They, that's right. Not going to be so mediated yeah, this time. That's right. So I think he has this unusual opportunity, and probably very skillful people who have arranged this in the campaign. You know, they're, they're the people who were my interns. I, they know things that I couldn't possibly know uh, about how to do it. They were all took off from college and spent the, the last six months in Chicago working out new media, they called it. So I think that's a big part of it. How, how do you manage these expectations? Is that part of the transition? Is that a deliberate part of a transition process? Um, if it isn't, it ought to be. And I think you saw the beginning of the process election night. Uh, the president-elect came out on stage. Uh, he seemed sober, determined, almost grim, very much unlike the affect of pre previous public appearances. And he delivered a speech which, if it wasn't quite, I have nothing to offer you but blood, toil, tears, and sweat, was certainly a pretty stark warning about how steep the hill was and how and how long it was going to take to get back up it, given the fact that we're now at the bottom. Uh, I think that was the beginning of a very wise strategy. Uh, and I saw it continued to some extent in a very sober and restrained first president-elect press conference. Uh, and I believe that uh, to the extent that he continues to appear publicly, he will have to continue to do that. Uh, and uh, it will be very interesting in that connection to see what kind of tone he strikes in what I will optimistically call his first inaugural. Uh, and the reason I say that is that it's entirely possible that the man who wrote Kennedy's inaugural will actually have a hand in drafting this one. And uh, I am old enough to remember you know, the trumpet sounding in that first inaugural. And it was a call to arms figuratively and in many respects literally. And it's not, it's not clear to me that President Obama can afford to give the same kind of speech that JFK gave 48 years ago. 
But Bill, I think though that not only he did do that the election night. There are tough decisions that are going to have to be made, and he can't do it alone. The White House staff has to also echo that. His cabinet secretaries have to also do that. And the American people have to not be unrealistic in terms of what they expect of him during his turn. The people in this audience and all across America have to do their part also. Do you That's think people are unrealistic? you think the public's unrealistic right now? Yes, I do. And I do because people have a high degree of need. These are very difficult times. And the tone of his campaign was inspirational and visionary, as it should have been. But I think that as we go along, if he starts out, if he continues like he did election night, Bill, and if his cabinet members and the staff members in the White House talk about how we have to make tough decisions and how everyone has to be with us, I think they can build, help build down those expectations. Mm -hmm. But so, let, me, let me just pick up on that for, for a second, yeah. because I will never forget the grinding of the gears that occurred after Bill Clinton's first budget was made public. You know, one of my jobs as one of two deputy assistants for domestic policy was to go from meeting to meeting to meeting, explaining to various groups and various constituencies why they had expected prosperity and were getting austerity this instead. Was this, this, was, was, this was in early 1993, you know, in, in the... In that transition in, No, no, not in the transition, but in... Uh, in the, sorry, days. Early in, days of the, of the president. The first, the, the two weeks <laughs> after... Uh, I, Bill, I believe Bill Clinton's budget was rolled out on February 19th. Is that right, Alice? I think that's right. Yeah. And uh, the two weeks after February uh, 19th were hell on earth for people in my position because, the, because there were dozens of disappointed constituencies, and it was my unhappy job to go from meeting to meeting and get yelled at. And it was, you know, and you could, you could see the process of adjustment beginning, but it wasn't easy because... Were you actually and literally getting yelled at? Yes. Oh, so oh, was yeah. I. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. It, it was, it, and within the, within the White House itself, because so many of the younger White House staff uh, had been part of the campaign, and almost all of them, and had been part of making these promises and didn't want to see them go down the drain. And here were these austere budget folks saying, uh, we have to balance the budget. We can't fund the middle class tax cut. We can't fund uh, the big infrastructure program. We can't fund 10 other things. Uh, and it was a fight uh, for the the president's soul within the uh, ad, uh, within the administration itself. The president came down the right way. He made it very clear from the very beginning and back before uh, the inauguration that that was what he was going to do. And there was no confusion in the economic team, but there was confusion in the rest of the administration and tugging and hauling. Uh, Bob Woodward wrote a book about it called The Agenda. Mm. I think there's, I don't know if there's a difference, since you are clearly describing the way that it usually is. Ed can say that too when you go up to the Hill, uh, especially if you don't have a Congress of your party. Uh, you did have it in that case. But we're talking about relations with Congress in part here. I have a feeling, at least initially, we're in for a better time right now. I think we, of course, he has a good-sized majority, the president uh, of his party in Congress. 
that's necess not necessarily enough. Our parties are not monolithic. But we do have a leadership uh, that I feel has a real stake in getting something done in the way that they, they haven't been able to get something done in the last two years, even though they were, they were the majority party in Congress. Uh, I think uh, he comes out of the Congress, not deeply out of the Congress, but he, was, he is the United States Senator at the moment. I, I think that there's a greater chance, at least for initial cooperation, including the sort of desperately needed cooperation of getting his people confirmed much faster than has ever been done before. Let me, uh, people, the, the White House staff, for the most part, doesn't have to be confirmed by the Senate. There are a few people that have to, OMB and United States Trade Rep and others. But I believe that this Congress, the Senate, will probably for the first three or four months confirm the President's secretaries, deputy secretaries, undersecretaries, and assistant secretaries fairly efficiently. But after that, I think what you'll find is that some of the historical problems with the jam up at the, in the Senate, sometimes, sometimes having nothing to do with the individual, but with other issues, will clog up. But I'll bet you that he'll get what he wants for the most part for the, at least nearly the first half of, of uh, his term. I'm the first year. You want to have the first there, year. I do want to ask you a, a policy question, Thomas. Go ahead. Well, on, on the confirmation, we were very fortunate. Uh, we had in the Senate, for the first time in quite a while, we had a Senate of the same party as the President. The House was still in the opposition party. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Senate even uh, held hearings even before Inauguration Day for the Cabinet, so that uh, within a week, I believe, or two weeks at the most, we had all the cabinet members in place, and that was an extremely important thing mm -hmm. so that the president could have his. Uh, we had the first cabinet meeting literally the day after inauguration, yeah. and uh, so that's a critical thing, and I would suggest that to the new president that, uh, that he actually do that and have, try to get the leadership to have the hearings in January before the 20th on all the cabinet members, because that, that, those are the people who are going to be making the subordinate decisions out there in the various departments. Having said that, uh, with maximum feasible cooperation from Congress, it's always going to take a period of time for the cabinet departments to become fully functional, which means that in the early months, the White House staff and how it functions is really critical because I believe in the first three or four months, that is what drives an administration. That can be up and running, fully functional from day one, if the president gives appropriate priority. Yeah, has even more power, really, and, 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 and decision-making in those early days. I believe so, yes, yes. which is why it is so very important, and you know, I, you know, I admire Bill Clinton in a hundred different ways, but the ratio of the time that he spent constituting his cabinet to the time he spent constituting his White House staff and the order in which he did it, in my judgment, were the reverse of what they should have been, and as a result, the White House staff, which should have been an organized, unified driver of the administration early on, uh, was, did not function in that fashion. And it, it created difficulties that I think could have been avoided. But we did end up with eight years of peace and prosperity. Well, look, <laughs> but Bob, I think you'd agree that the first three or four months were not as pretty as they might have been. <laughs> but, let me just say, the whole, the whole history of, uh, of um, administrations uh, uh, moving... Uh, over 
more than those two or three we're talking about, uh, has been power moving to the White House. There's been one brief exception that happens to be represented here. In the first year, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Edmise, in the first year, just in the first year of the, of the Reagan administration, you had set up small groups of cabinet officers. They were not sub-cabinet, but they were, they were subgroups of the cabinet, broken, uh, broken down by subject, where they got to know each other quickly, uh, and, and there was some movement uh, away from this White House-dominated uh, typical cabinet. Is that correct? That is uh, right, Steve. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, that really exists through the whole eight years. Mm -hmm. The president, uh, having been a governor, had used the cabinet system in California. And he found that that, that was the best forum for decision-making, so that policy decisions came before the cabinet. White House staff participated also, but in a lesser role on the decision-making process. And so uh, it was for that reason that uh, he set up these cabinet councils, as they were okay. called, uh, on subject matters. In the first term, there were eight of them, uh, because there were quite a few things to do. National Security Council, obviously, was one. Domestic policy, or rather, uh, economic policy, commerce and trade, and so on. In the second term, he uh, streamlined them down, because a lot of the policy work was already in place, to three, the National Security Council, Domestic uh, Policy Council, and the Economic uh, Policy Council. And so uh, that was, uh, he was able then to meet with these on a regular basis, and he had an interesting way of doing it. The cabinet councils would meet before they met with him. They would meet in a planning session and they would make sure that everybody in the council agreed on the facts so they didn't have a dispute about the facts in front of the president. And secondly, they would arrange the different options so that when it came in, you could maximize the use of his time by having a series of options, then discuss those options in front of him and have him make the decision. So this is when I talked about procedures. Having some sort of an orderly way of handling decision-making is a very important part of maximizing the use of the president's time but also bringing your cabinet together as far as a body of advisors, really, on, on policy matters. I'm wondering if I could uh, ask you to uh, pursue that a little bit in a slightly different vein and, and have others jump in, and that is when a new president comes in, when the new team comes in, there's a lot to study up on, <laughs> is an understatement. And the issues that you have to deal with are immensely more complex and you get much more deeply in the weeds than you would ever imagine by watching it from the outside, looking in and listening to the campaign. I remember during the transition, if we can call it that, from Ronald Reagan to George Herbert Walker Bush. That was his vice president for eight years. We went into, I think it was close to six-month policy review toward the Soviet Union at the time. And this is a vice president who traveled widely. How do you, how, how do you study policy at the same time as you're trying to commit it uh, in a world that expects instant response, especially if you're dealing with economic catastrophe? Is there a formula to that? Well, one way, uh, the most immediate policies are going to be the economic policies and the foreign policies. On the foreign policy, uh, there's a great deal of information, institutional memory that carries on. The National uh, Security Council staff is not uh, wholesalely replaced. So, they're still uh, so there. there'll be some people, many of them are detailed from the Department of Defense, the CIA, the uh, Department of State. So they're going to stay there at least for a while. Are they trusted? And uh, they are trusted. These are, are they listened to by the new team? Well, they were in our case uh, listened to. And you have your own people there too. And of course, you don't bring in total novices. Uh, 
you bring in people from other administrations into your administration. We had people that served in the, with Steve in the Nixon uh, uh, cabinet or the Nixon administration. We brought in people who had a great po uh, foreign policy experience from academia and so on, people that served in uh, the military, so that uh, you don't really start totally from scratch with a blank slate. You have people who have this institutional memory. And then you have to make sure that what they're giving you is objective advice so that you can then make the decisions, you, the president, can make the decisions based on that advice. I think the looking at the President-elect Obama's operation, he has a good mix of people who've been around for a while, some Clinton people, and some new people also. Number two, you've got these teams going out to the agencies and reviewing everything that they're doing right now. And uh, so I think those are some of, some of the ways that you kind of get up to speed quicker on, on what's going on uh, in, in the administration. Well, let, me, let me jump in on this, too, because uh, as, as Ed said, and everybody agrees, obviously, some of these people who are your domestic advisor, your national security advisor, they, they don't come in brainless. They, they have their own ideas. One hopes. You hope One not. hopes. They have their own ideas, and they're maybe very <laughs> detailed ideas. Of what they, the, the problem is how much conflict does, does President Obama wish to build into his system? It's a very important question. I mean, if he, you, know, you academics love conflict. You know, have one person on one side, one on the other. Let them argue out in front of the president, and that's just wonderful. The problem is, in part for the president, is it takes a very long time. Hey, the president knows that at 100 days, mm -hmm. you know, every, every journalist is going to call every presidential historian and say, hey, how did it go? That sort of They're not going to wait for 100 days. Well, you know, 100 days is the Rooseveltian thing. <laughs> no, so they, they've, they've, they've got this going for them. And another thing, as this process goes out, because nobody agrees, because you've got all these wonderful experts in disagreement, you get leaks. The moment you have leaks, it looks as if you're, you have an administration in, in disarray. So it's a very important point. At this point, when he picks advisor X and advisor Y, uh, to have some understanding of are they in agreement, are they in dis disagreement. And another thing, do they like each other? Can they work with each other? I mean, you just look at the history of these things, and hey, Nixon had Bill Rogers as his Secretary of State, and Henry Kissinger as National Security. They hated each other. They weren't going to agree. You had George Shultz and Cap Weinberger, may I add? They weren't <laughs> great friends by the oh, time know, we were well, finished. So you, this is another question of the personality that has to fit if you're going to move forward. And there was some of that in the Clinton White House, a oh. lot of that in the Clinton White House. Uh, there was, although I don't think that was our biggest problem. I wanted to come back to uh, the management of the president's time. Uh, and presidents have different personalities, obviously. And one had the impression that President Reagan was a very good manager of his own time. Uh, Bill Clinton was not. And he, he learned uh, uh, on the job, but the, uh, the, the, in the economic team, which uh, actually was not part of the chaos in the beginning, uh, it functioned very well. But it functioned well uh, because Bob Rubin is a very disciplined person. And he would move the conversation on and say, now, Mr. President, we have to decide this. We have to move on to the next point. Uh, but even with Bob doing that, we spent endless hours uh, in the Roosevelt Room over the first budget. 
And the president, who actually did have executive experience because he'd been governor, but he'd been governor of a small state. And that's not quite the same. And he was used to going through the budget line by line, and he did. Uh, but it was a much bigger budget. <laughs> and, and it took an awful long time uh, to do that. And it was, uh, I think, an educational experience for everybody, uh, but it was not good use of the president's uh, uh, Rivlin's memo to the president, don't go line by line. Don't, don't go line <laughs> by line. Uh, yes, uh, I, I remember, think that's right. I remember right. one time I was, over at the, I was at the White House, I was covering the White House at the time, and we had a briefing with the president, mm -hmm. Roosevelt, and President Clinton. Mm -hmm. And at the end of this briefing, he, he, he stood up and he kept going. And he, right. never, he wouldn't stop. Yes. And his aides came in, and they practically had to grab him physically yes. and pull him out because, yes. I mean, he would get involved in these conversations and wouldn't disengage. No, he loved it. And uh, he had to have handlers <laughs> who would help him, yeah. uh, save him from himself uh, because he's so smart, and he likes arguments, and he likes discussion, and uh, you can't have too much of that if you're a president. You get a, the impression that I was there. I mean, I, was, I worked for him for 30 years, so I was there in Arkansas, and she's right. He, I mean, he managed the state just like a country store. He knew everybody and everything. And I think, and he's brilliant. And so when you came here, you know, he wanted to make a whole lot of decisions. I think what has to happen, going back to human capital, Barack Obama, Senator Obama, President-elect Obama, has to surround himself with good people who believe in his agenda and who will make a lot of these decisions for him. Senator-elect Obama, uh, President-elect Obama, got to get this right, cannot make all these decisions. And he's got to have people there to make them. Who tells him that? Well, who tells the president that? Yeah. Well, I think uh, his advisors, his, uh, presumably his chief of staff, uh, the other top advisors. But uh, you see, uh, President Reagan, when he took office, had already had experience governing a big state. Right. And uh, he knew that his time had to be conserved. And he, that's why the, a lot of the uh, procedures that he put in, like this cabinet and all that sort of thing, he'd used that for eight years as governor of California, so it was not that big a problem. Yeah. Uh, I would say, by the way, one thing that I think uh, President-elect Obama is already doing well is not confining his advice to just people who are government employees, even his own people. Uh, his idea of bringing these economic advisors, particularly in this time, together, the group that was standing behind him the other day, is a very good move. President Reagan had the president's... Uh, uh, economic Policy Advisory Board, almost from the start, and these were a group of people from outside, so that he was not dependent just on people inside the White House or his cabinet, but had a group of people that were very smart who could give him an outside look at these key issues uh, having to do with the economy. I want to I want to throw a monkey wrench into this conversation slightly for a moment, and then we're going to come to the audience a few minutes for your questions. But how many of you in the audience, if you put your hands up way high so we can see you, how many of you are among those? Who had actually who contributed or had a role in the Obama campaign and have ever gotten an email from Barack Obama or the campaign? Oh wow! Look at that. <laughs> now, how many of you have been to what is it? Change.gov, which is all right. That's Obama. <laughs> oh wow! So we are talking about a different. And we're in the transition. I mean, he's not there yet. Uh -huh. We've got a different level of civic engagement, at least up till now. Yes, and for our radio audiences, let the record show, what would you say, 60% of the audience put their hands up? What does that mean, Bill Bell? Well, it's, it's, it's part of the, uh, the overall problem, it seems to me, of, <laughs> problem? of, well, it's both an opportunity, it's an opportunity and a challenge, and let me, you know, let me fill in the blanks here. Uh, 
The Obama campaign created an unprecedented level of one-to-one and one-to-many involvement in the campaign uh, in in organizing, in fundraising, and in the active discussion of issues between and among his supporters. And one of the things that I did before I came to Brookings was to start a, uh, a research center that focused on the civic and political life of young adults. And you know what what Senator Obama and candidate Obama did was to build on a trend that was slowly increasing in strength. You know the combination of young adults wanting to participate more in America in American politics, including national politics, plus information technology, new information to- technology as a specially appropriate vehicle uh, for doing that, and he built a mighty movement out of that. And and then you know, a, a question that you can ask is how you uh, you know how you conduct the presidency uh, in a way that continues that involvement in a satisfactory fashion. And the reason, the reason that's so difficult is this, is this is not like, let us say, the labor movement or the anti-war movement or other, the other great movements that have shaped American history in the past century. Those were, those were single-issue movements with a concrete policy focus, specific agenda around which they organized and for which they applied pressure on the government. This, you, you're much more broad-based. You have all sorts of interests. You're not altogether behind a single single agenda, uh, but you want to be heard, you want to be involved. Uh, and it's going to be a monumental challenge, it seems to me, for the administration to maintain the level of involvement. Uh, and I'm not saying that it can't be done. What I am saying is that it will require some creativity, uh, structural creativity, above and beyond the extraordinary creativity that was shown during the campaign. Steve, how do you see a transition team building this into a presidency? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. And let, let me go back to one other thing that, that we, we jumped across, because here we have a president-elect who um, has been a senator for, for a couple of years. Uh, we, we really have no idea of what kind of uh, an executive he's going to be. We know, as you keep repeating, that he had a very disciplined campaign, but we don't fool ourselves that governing that a campaign is not governance in the same way at all. Uh, so he's a wonderful question mark ahead of us. In some ways, um, I think you know, he was criticized for his inexperience. I think that's a great asset. <laughs> you know, if he had been in the Senate too long, he would have thought he knew Washington, but all he really knew was Capitol Hill and the Senate. He has a smattering of Capitol Hill. That's good. You need that. Uh, but he doesn't need to be reconditioned to understand that Article One has a totally different culture than Article Two. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to this. I have no idea how he's going to respond to this way, but I think it's a, for a political scientist, it's a fascinating question. Uh, Ednice, I want to come back to you, and then if it's all right with everybody, we'll go to questions on the floor. And are there mics? Or, okay, so if you have a question... Why don't you 
raise your hand and get her attention in the back. We'll get a mic for you. But Ed, we started out in the conversation, and Steve, I think, pointed out that when, when Reagan took over, there was the Troika. There was yeah. Ed Meese, Mike Deaver, James Baker. Now, there are a lot of folks, and we could wouldn't take very long to go back. There were a few leaks in that ship. There was a little rivalry going on there. They always say the ship of state leaks from the top. Well, <laughs> there, there was a lot of leaking from the top. <laughs> but, but aside from the leaks, the whole idea of kind of a triumvirate or a troika or whatever you want to call it, dividing the responsibilities as opposed to having a single powerful chief of staff. As you look at it now and you see where this president is headed, what's your recommendation? Should that power, should that influence be concentrated on that one single person and funneled that way to the president? I think it depends on two things. One, the president's personality and his way of doing things. And secondly, who is the chief of staff? If you have a chief of staff who everything has to run through him, you're going to have a bottleneck and it's never going to work. Uh, we tried that to some extent in the second term and it didn't work out too well. On the other hand, you have to have a group of people if you're going to have more than one person at the top. Now, these are people who can go in. Most presidents have always had more than one person who can go in and see him at any time. And so it's a matter, really, of working out between the president and his top people who is going to do what. The chief of staff, obviously, has got to be the person who runs the White House itself, the organization of the White House, and that sort of thing. But on policy matters, for example, and working with the cabinet, it may well be that you have a, a counselor, as, as was my title, and actually, I was the senior person on the White House staff with that title because I was the only member of the cabinet from the White House staff. Uh, but you have to work that out and work out these arrangements so that so that everybody understands what the ball game is and how they're going to play. How many people had walk-in rights to the Oval Office? Uh, basically four. Uh, Mike Deaver, Jim Baker, uh, myself, and then in a special way, the uh, National Security Assistant. And how about with Bill Clinton? Too many at the beginning. I don't. I, I don't know that I could count. Could you, Bill? Uh, but you gave uh, me enough time. <laughs> it uh, it uh, it narrowed over time, and when uh, Leon Panetta became chief of staff, uh, it uh, he got but had a firmer hand on who got to see the president. I think it, it narrowed down. I think to the national security advisor, chief of staff, and then the people you know in the outer office right there. You know his executive assistant. I think in the end it got down to that. But in, in the beginning it was a... Uh, Steve, is there a recommendation and what do we do now? Uh, yeah, in fact, if I had a copy of the book I could have answered that question. <laughs> <laughs> but at any rate... Uh, we know where you can buy it. That, that's right. It's right outside. <laughs> outside it's right, right available. Yeah, I, uh, I think um, these, as, as Ed say, depend on, on the person of the president. Of course, the president... George W. Bush also had a troika to begin with. It's not, but the most standard way is to go through uh, a, a chief of staff. Since he's already got a chief of staff as his first appointment, uh, everything from now on has to be judged in terms of Rahm Emanuel, and he's not somebody I know how to judge. And he didn't pick, well, uh, he didn't pick a shrinking violet, that, that <laughs> we know. I think one thing, uh, even though there were four of us who had access, uh, you, you have kind of a discipline of yourself. You're not going to uh, violate right. that privilege. At the same time, each of us tried to make sure that we didn't try to be the bottleneck, you know, even in our own areas. But when it was necessary, we'd bring someone else, other people in, so the people on the White House staff, let alone the cabinet members, cabinet members met frequently with the president, uh, at least once a week, sometimes as many as uh, five or six, 
cabinet events, cabinet council meetings, national security council meetings, so that they all had a lot of close contact with them. This is absolutely critical if you want to keep your cabinet uh, in good form and let and knowing what the president's thinking. A lot of times what the president says in off moments before the cabinet meeting or during a break or something like that keeps his top people advised of how he's thinking on different subjects so they can pass that on to their departments. But in terms of the White House staff, uh, you don't want to isolate, you don't want to isolate the president and have only one person coming in to see him interpreting what other people have told them about policy issues. So it's a very delicate dance, but you have to handle it if you're, again, going to conserve the president's time and yet keep him, have him up to date on the various issues. Shall we go down for some questions? Sure. I see a microphone right here. You want to start us off? <clears throat> well, thanks for being here. Um, question is, what role do you see Vice President-elect uh, Joe Biden having in this transition process? And will his 35 years in the Senate help move this uh, transition process along? Alice Rivlin, you want to start? Well, uh, Biden has, uh, Vice President-elect Biden, uh, has uh, a lot of years of experience in foreign policy. I suspect he will uh, play a uh, strong role there. Um, and he certainly will be part of working with the Congress, especially the Senate. Um, it doesn't guarantee that it will make that easy. Um, and indeed, President Clinton did an interesting thing. He sort of played at cabinet government. Uh, he uh, pulled in a senator to be treasury secretary, uh, a, a congressman to be OMB director, and uh, we even had a two, two more congressmen in the cabinet. Um, it didn't turn out to be a terribly successful uh, experience so far as working with the Congress wet. We, do, we are not a parliamentary government. And uh, is the, the Congress is very jealous of its own separate powers. And uh, I think we can't pretend that. My, my feeling on the vice presidency seems to differ from what we get more and more of. Um, uh, starting in some ways with Richard Nixon, um, we, the president started to give them odd jobs. Uh, it was almost as if, what a shame, we're paying them all that money, let's use them somehow. <laughs> and they started to gather more and more odd jobs until they became sort of a cabinet minister without portfolio. You know, we all know that the only job he, he has, uh, rather than casting a vote in a tie, is that we want instant, we want somebody there instantly if something should happen to the president. That's what it's really all about. But instead, we've given them all of these odd jobs. Uh, I think, actually, of all the odd jobs we gave a president, uh, Clinton did the best thing with Gore. He gave him that uh, a process job about how we could make government work better. It didn't give him. Now, uh, when we reached the present president, the present vice president, um, we gave him so many odd jobs that it started to look as if, my God, who is really running the show here? Uh, in my little book, I have some advice to the president. It says, never give major public policy responsibility to someone you can't fire. <laughs> which, which is either the vice president or your spouse. <laughs> right, or your in-laws or all sorts, your parents or so forth and so on. Now, you know, I really go back to the old idea that we should treat the vice president, other than send him do various things that the president can't do, go to 
state funerals abroad and so forth, as the Prince of Wales. We, we want to educate that person as best we can if someday they might have to be president. So when we heard the debate between Governor Palin and Senator Biden, um, I thought that Biden had it right. Palin said, well, I've talked to my principal, and he says he's giving me specific responsibilities, in this case, it was going to be energy. Biden said, no, I, did, I talked to my principal, but he said, no, that I'll be generally, I'll be in the room. Uh, I'll listen, I will be advising if I'm asked for my advice. I think that's right. I think they, they, they assuming that they stay, stick with that, they got it right. And I, and I think Alice is, is right, too. The idea, because uh, Biden has this long Senate uh, history, that he can be used somehow as a lobbyist, I think that, that's a tricky business. These people care a lot about their prerogatives, and I don't think that necessarily works. It, it had to be, maybe, with uh, initially with Cheney, because it was virtually tied. Your vice president, George... Herbert Walker Bush yeah, now he was, was a lower-profile guy. They had yeah. lunch once a week, Wednesday yeah. lunch, as I recall. Yeah. Right, uh, Thursday lunch, actually, Thursday? Mexican food. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's which how they, I lost which, Wednesday. Which they <laughs> both lost. Yeah. yeah, no, but, but uh, Vice President Bush did, He, in my opinion, he's one of the finest vice presidents because he did keep a low profile. He didn't try to uh, outdo the cabinet members, but he gave the president his quiet advice when, and when the president wanted it, which was on uh, Thursday lunches. And, and really was uh, very good about that. He did certain specific things. It was necessary at that time to deal with the drug problem on the border. And so he became the head of the National Border Interdiction System. Uh, that's one of the odd jobs that Steve was talking about, but it didn't interfere, and, it, and you needed someone of a high profile in order to do it. Uh, the other thing, obviously, is going to the funerals. Uh, we had a lot of them during that period of time. You know, the, the Soviet leaders kept dying off rather regularly. <laughs> so much so that, that the chief of staff to the vice president said, our motto is, you die, we fly. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me give an example from the personnel standpoint. Uh, vice President Gore uh, had a, a, a role as it relates to appointments in interior, uh, EPA, and those sort of environmental agencies, I would always consult with him before making a recommendation to the president. So I, I would. So you went. Wait, wait, wait. So you would. So so there was actually an area of personnel carved out that that was the vice president's area of expertise and domain, essentially. Yes. Well, area of expertise. I would consult with him before making a recommendation. He didn't make the decisions, but the president would always want to know what the vice president thought about appointments to those agencies involving the environment or interior. So I would, I would assume, I don't know, that maybe the pre president-elect uh, Obama would look to him for appointments, comments on appointments in foreign policy. Well, that, that's curious. that brings up, I think, uh, uh, a larger point and one where I might want to uh, uh, sort of entertain a modest dissent uh, from from Steve Hess's view of the vice presidency, which I think was factually accurate 50 years ago or even 40 years ago, but the vice presidency as an institution has evolved, I think, in important ways. And I would, and I really do think that two expectations are now built into the office. Number one, that the vice president is likely to be a kind of senior counselor to the president, which was not always the case. Not the only senior counselor, but an important one. And I know, and, and I know that Vice President Gore 
played that role to the hilt, not because he demanded it, but because President Clinton wanted it. And secondly, the federal government is now so large and so complex, and the claims on the president's time are so extreme that if you can, in effect, subcontract a handful of non-trivial areas to the vice president, that can be a productive management tool from the standpoint of governance. I've got it. I agree. I've got it. I Biden's blog. <laughs> but we know one thing that it, it does. It, it immensely expands the executive office of the president as the vice president's office suddenly has heaps of people that they never had before. Now, if you think that's a good idea. I actually heard, I actually heard a very interesting story with respect to Ch Dick Cheney on this from somebody uh, from, a, from, a, from a diplomat who said that it got, it got so um, pronounced you know, uh, and, and Dick Cheney had his own foreign policy team, that when you came to Washington as a visiting diplomat, if you really wanted to know what the foreign policy of this, of this country was, you'd have to include the vice president's office among your rounds. You'd go to the State Department, you go elsewhere, National Security Council, but a separate visit to, 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 the, to the vice president's office. Do we have another question on the floor? There's a question right there. Let's get a, if we can get a mic to this. There we go. Come back. I um hi everyone. I have been listening to the what I call basement pundits, um, guessing who Obama would um, name to his cabinet, and it seems like the prevailing logic is that he's going to empty the Senate chambers and empty the governor mansions and appoint them all to the cabinet. Um, first question is, do you think that's a good idea? Um, and secondly, if outside of the obvious Senate and governor positions, who would you look for to staff your cabinet? <laughs> All right, you're, you're reappointed as head of well, personnel. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good question, and there are a lot, there's a lot of speculation, but I, I, I doubt if you'll see, what I heard you say is, all the cabinet members are going to be either senators or governors. I don't think that's going to be the case. Uh, I think you'll see some of those folks there. Uh, and then in terms of who I would, I don't, it, typically what you do is you, you kind of go with people that you know, or you have, if either one of you were president or running some big corporation or governor, you would first go to the people that you know who are capable and competent and who help you. That's what I think he'll do. And I don't know what those, who those names would be. Alice Ripplin, what do you, th to the economic team, since that's the area you know well and given the challenge. Well, I'm not going to name names, but I think, uh, I think Bob's right uh, that uh, he will look for highly competent people that he's had some exposure to. Uh, they don't have to be his best friends from, from way back, but right. uh, people that uh, have uh, work, that he's worked with in the last few years and in the campaign uh, that uh, have impressed him as uh, trustworthy and good to go. Larry Summers is Treasury Secretary. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> I've been saved, let me say, all week by Ed Meese, because at this point, uh, every call, every other call I get from a reporter has to do with the speculation of who is going to be appointed to someone. I had one today, time, wanted to know, reach the point of asking me about ambassadors. <laughs> when I get those calls, I said, well, there's a Meese rule, because remember how these things are done. And Mies' rule is 
those who know don't talk. Right. And those who, who talk, talk don't know. Yes, especially at this stage. <laughs> Absolutely. But it doesn't prevent us from asking. <laughs> because it is truly Washington's favorite parlor game. And if we took this away, there would be almost nothing to keep cable television going. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think that there will be, obviously, some senators and some governors. But with Bob Nash, I don't think it's at all likely that the Senate chambers and the governor's offices are going, going to be emptied. There'll be a balance. Uh, but one thing, one thing we can see with some key appointments <laughs> is what kind of fundamental policy thrust does the president-elect want in an issue area? Does he want a kind of a steady-as-you-go policy, or does he want some fairly dramatic reform? And let me give you an example. Uh, president-elect has talked passionately about education and the need to improve education as the key to the future and the key to achieving genuinely equal opportunity. Well, there's a big debate in this country as to whether we can get a dramatic improvement of public education by pouring a lot more wine into the same old bottles, or whether we need some new bottles. Uh, and some people are urging the president-elect to, to select Joel Klein, who's now Mike Bloomberg's you know, uh, head of education in New York City, an ardent reformer and a crockery breaker, a confirmed crockery breaker, as secretary of education. There are others who believe that that represents a, you know, a degree of reform that would really upset the established institutions and the teachers' unions, et cetera, and therefore he shouldn't do that. I think we're going to learn a lot by seeing whether he appoints sort of steady-as-you-go conventional people to head departments and agencies, or whether in some areas he's willing to take a chance and throw his hat in with, with bolder reform and be willing to take some of the heat for it. Let me, let me go in, because, uh, by the way, as we get into the question of the cabinet, that happens to be the subject that we're dealing with on Thursday, so mm -hmm. please come back, <laughs> and we'll have former cabinet officers. I wish Ed could have joined us as a former cabinet officer as well. Uh, he's, he told me he can. So at any rate, uh, uh, but, but there's another thing. Uh, uh, Bill importantly talked about the substance of a, of a cabinet officer. Uh, but Bill Clinton did something quite re remarkable. He decided, and he made this actually a policy, really, in the first place, that he wanted a cabinet that looked like America. Uh, and that's part of the reason he spent so much time on it. It was like a crossword puzzle, the downs and the crosses. It took a lot of time. Uh, and he succeeded quite well. Uh, and George W. Bush actually did the same thing, I don't, for perhaps other reasons, but nevertheless, they were the first two presidents who, who produced cabinets uh, that had uh, a majority that weren't uh, white males of, of northern European descent. Very interesting. Uh, so we're going to see that. Now, if you just talk about cabinet, if you just talk about senators and governors, you're not going to get there. Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of your answer. If indeed this president-elect, who I'm sure is going to follow that as much as he can, you can't land up with senators and, and, and governors exclusively. Right. And, you, you and, you all, when you, and when you talk about diversity in the administration, you can't just limit it to cabinet members also. I mean, there are thousands. Bill Clinton had the most diverse cabinet in the history of the United States of America to date as it relates to African Americans, Latinos, Asians, Indians, gays, straight, all of that. Women. And women. And absolutely, he did. 
and, and, I, and I, I predict that you will see uh, Barack Obama, who had a campaign that looked like America. I mean, everybody. I mean, including whites. Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and he was elected for that reason. And I predict that he, when, when his cabinet is done, that the people of this country will be very impressed. He'll, he'll have the best and the brightest because he met so many people over this long campaign. I think that's what you're going to see from him. Go back to the floor. We got another question. We got some here. This gentleman right in the front row, and then we'll go back to this lady here. And you know what? We've got only a few minutes left. We've got we're going to take ten minutes. I'll tell you what, if you make your question short, we'll get some short answers, and we'll bounce okay. back and forth yeah, as much as we can. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. We got it. That was for them. Yeah. <laughs> this was supposed to be a two-part question, but I'm just no, going to But you'll make it a one-part question. Yeah. Okay. Um, this uh, this question is more directed towards uh, Mr. Nash, but I think it speaks to everyone in this room. Is probably. Uh, sent in an application to change.gov. Um, with over 50% of the federal workforce eligible for retirement, I think it's increasingly important for there to be new blood in entering public service. And uh, I, I was just wondering, what do, what do you think, what are, what are the chances of um, going through a standard application process, or does one need pre-existing relationships to get a job at the White House? Well, this is a very good question. Now, when you said over 50% of the people leaving, you're talking about career civil servants. You need to understand that the White House Personnel Office doesn't have anything to do with the career civil service. That's done by the Office of Personnel Management. And I would say that there are a lot of people who ought to look for service in the government as a career civil servant rather than as a political appointee. There are many more positions available there. Okay, get an answer. Okay, next, where, uh, there was somebody in the, oh, there we go. This lady, yes. Same question. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, question over here. You got a different, let's get you the microphone. And if this side of the room wants to get involved, you better weigh in here. You can actually limit this to one sentence each if you would like. My question is if you each had a few minutes with the president-elect and could only give him one piece of advice for the coming four years. What would you say to him individually, please? Love that. Love that. Only a few minutes. Mm -hmm. so one, one sentence each. It'd be a long sentence, Bill. You want to say that? Yeah. Uh, I would say, Mr. President, be selectively bold, comma, but don't overload the Congress, period. <laughs> <laughs> Always tell the American people the truth. Yeah. You, your credibility is the most important attribute that you have. Yeah. I just say something very similar. Be true to yourself. Uh, the American people will understand it if you're not. Remember, the last president I worked for was named Richard Nixon. <laughs> I'm going to be more substantive. Uh, <laughs> I would tell him, when you make your budget, uh, do keep two things in mind at once and put them both in, that you've got to stimulate the economy in the short run and you've got to bring the budget deficit down in the long run. Wow, there's a lot in that one sentence. Yeah. <laughs> Hire good people who believe in your agenda and your dreams and make sure they understand that everything they do affect the lives of families and communities and nation and in fact even the world. So always, always do the right thing. Folks, I couldn't possibly come up with a better last question than that and a better way to leave this conversation. Yeah. Word of 
advice in the sentence. Thank you for your brilliant question and for the really terrific answers. And uh, for those of you who have questions beyond, I'm sure some of our panelists may linger for a few minutes. Please come back on Thursday. Yes, on Thursday. Uh, the book line. is where? Right out there. And the author will autograph? Here. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Bill, <laughs> that was a terrific session.